Hi, everybody. I'm Max here. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, <clears throat> we do some things a little different here. Uh, usually I get a presentation after I speak. I would feel much better if I'd got a check for my expenses. But uh, maybe that comes later. <laughs> I can only share with you my experience, strength, and hope. And with the hope that maybe something I'll say tonight will help somebody, I do know that the longer I'm around, the less I know. That if I uh, say anything that uh, is disturbing to anybody, please overlook it. If uh, you disagree with me, it's simply that you know more than I do. And uh, I give you the right to your opinion and only ask you to give me the right to mine. And I reserve the right to change my mind at any time and uh, give you that right, too. So we shouldn't have a problem. I always like to mention the seriousness of the illness that we have, that we talk about. When I stand up here and say I'm an alcoholic, it implies certain things to me, and I know that, that it's possible that when you call yourself an alcoholic, you're thinking of something a little different than, than I am when I call myself an alcoholic. But what I mean is that I am a person who happens to have an illness that is the most serious illness we have in our society today that it is the greatest killer of mankind, that we're living at an age when alcoholism is in epidemic proportions all over the world, that more people will die on this island from alcoholism in the next 12 months than any other single illness. So what we're talking about is not something that is just a problem. We're not talking about a drinking problem or any other kind of a problem. It's a serious deadly, incurable illness. And sometimes we forget about that. I was on a plane not long ago, and I happened to pick up a Time magazine, and I read an article that uh, is rather popular to discuss stateside these days, is the, the difference in the uh, respective strengths of the armies of the United States and of Russia, and the various quantities of weapons they have and who is superior in this area and who is superior in, in that area. And they were talking about the ground forces and they mentioned that the Russians have the United States badly outnumbered in some areas. But what they had going for them, they said, was that one of the serious problems in the Russian army was alcoholism. Therein followed 13 full pages of advertisements so that we could catch up. It, it just was incredible that, that we could talk about the serious problem of alcoholism in the Russian army and pretend we didn't have it here. It is a problem that is all over the world, and believe me, it is in growing in leaps and bounds, and we should be conscious of that, because we are people who happen to be blessed with the answer to the problem of alcoholism in the individual, and that we have a program given to us that is a program of recovery. And I would like to emphasize that point, that our first legacy in this fellowship that was given to us is a legacy of recovery and not of sobriety. 
that there is a program that teaches us that we can recover from alcoholism. And I like to stand up here tonight and tell you that I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I don't do that because I am cocky or cocksure or that I am bragging anyway, but I simply tell you that because I believe this program works. I have every right to believe that, and I believe what we read in the program, and I believe what was read tonight, that I share my experience, strength, and hope with you that we may help each other recover from alcoholism. And I don't think we need to be superstitious about that. I believe myself to have been given a program of recovery that works. Now, I know that some people don't like that statement, and I don't think you should get hung up on it, but just think of it in this light, that if you are talking to somebody in the medical profession, and you're going to tell them that after 26 or 27 years, you're still going to be recovering, they're liable to look for some other place for an answer. I know that if you went to a doctor to be treated for some illness, and he, he was still treating you, and you were still recovering some 25 years later, you'd probably seek another doctor. And they have the same right to think that way about us. We do have a program of recovery, but there is an out for those that don't agree with that. And that out is in the preamble that was read tonight, too. It says those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. So you can take your pick. I like to think I've given myself completely to this program and it works. I didn't uh, start out life to be an alcoholic as I don't suppose any of you did. I was born in a little country town just a few miles out of Winnipeg. I was born and raised on a farm in a very healthy atmosphere. I was born into what would be considered a good family, a family of some means, a family of a great deal of respect and prestige in the community. I was brought up in a good Christian home, and I like what my old buddy down in Texas says, that good Christian homes are just breeding grounds for alcoholics, <laughs> because Everybody gets up and says they came from a good Christian home, and I guess, you know, it's just something you say, but I do mean that I was brought up in a home that where I was taught all the things that you should be taught. I, I was uh, taught all the the stories of, of the Bible. I was uh, brought up in a home that taught me right from wrong. I knew right from wrong at an early age. I was taken to Sunday school and to church and, and all of the things that, that you should have. I was privileged. I never did without anything. I was never shortchanged in any way. I was given a great deal of love and affection, and I can never recall at any time when I was abused in any way. And there was at no time in my life when I would could look back on it and say that because of this or because of that, I would be destined to become an alcoholic. And 
As a matter of fact, I believe myself to be the only alcoholic in our family, at least the only one that ever admitted it. I, I, I hear stories about some uh, relatives who have long since died, and some of those stories would lead me to believe that maybe they did indulge a little. But I'm the only one that I know of that became an alcoholic. And I like to remember... What another friend of mine said one time when he was speaking, that it's a damn poor family that can't afford at least one alcoholic. And I like to think I saved my family from that shame. But I was went through my childhood years and my teenage years, went to, to school and went to high school, and sometime in my teenage years, as I look back now, I can tell that something was happening to me then. I know that I started to feel different. And I suppose whatever it is that makes me what I am, the effect of it was taking place then. And I noticed that when my brother and sister and I get together, and as we do from time to time, and we talk about our childhood and we talk about our early years, as young adults, that we all, we have different things we remember. They remember things that I don't remember. They remember stupid things. And I remember all the things of great importance that always involve my feelings. And somewhere back in, in that time period, in my early teens, was when I started to have that so-called alcoholic sensitivity, and I started to change, and I started to feel on the outside, and I started to feel uh, different, almost a feeling that you can find hard to describe. But I do know that when I was about 15 years of age, I took my first drink of alcohol, and I can remember that as clearly as if it happened today. And I don't suppose people that are not alcoholic or do not have trouble in their life remember their first drink as clearly as I do. I know that my brother and sister don't, but I do. I remember the first drink I ever took, and I remember how it made me feel. And I'll never forget that feeling because that was the feeling that I tried to get from then on over many years, every time I took a drink. Along about the time I graduated from high school, war had broken out, and so I went into the Army. And many people feel that because it was at the end of the 30s, the hungry 30s, that most of us went into the Army because we were looking for a job or some way to live. And that certainly wasn't the case with myself or with most of my friends. We were people who were, I guess, slightly disillusioned, but in those days we didn't have the communication that we have today, and we weren't as knowledgeable about worldly affairs, and we, we went to war to save our, our country and to do our duty, and, and I still felt that way, as a great many people did, uh, along into at least halfway through my service career. I spent five and a half years in the services and and was successful. I I enjoyed the army. I enjoyed the services, and I I did achieve the rank of captain in the Royal Canadian Artillery. And I 
I liked what that did for me. I liked the prestige that I enjoyed. I liked the the comfort of the fellowship that I found in the in the army. And I suppose when war ended, I was one of the few people that was disturbed by that. But you see, it was a hiding place for me. And even though we saw a great deal of action and it was a little bit exciting at times, there was a feeling that when the war was over, that my life was over and that I would go back home and be a nothing again. And I didn't like that prospect. As a matter of fact, it took me a long time to get home. I I never had any trouble in the in the services. I never was disciplined in any way out of sight of uh, a slight disciplinary action that we many of us received when I was taking my my officer's training. But because they were having a hard time making a, a gentleman out of me, um, it just seemed that when we got a little bit too much to drink in those days that we did things that were not considered things gentlemen should do. After the war was over, I started to get into trouble, and I wound up facing a court-martial uh, just about the time I was due to be sent home. And I will never forget the, the terrible, terrible... Uh, shame and remorse I had and, and when I appeared in front of my commanding officer hung over and sick and he greeted me then with the words that if I drank as much in the next eight years as I had drank in the last eight days I would be of no use to anybody including myself I probably was 23 years of age and with without sounding egotistical or bragging in any way, um, you don't get to be um, where I was at that stage, at that age, unless you got something on the ball. And here it was all going down the drain. And he told me that that he didn't know what would happen to me, that there was a large possibility that I would be sent home and discharged, and that probably it would be with some dishonor, and I could see everything going out the window, and I could see the shame that my family would face, and and what a terrible thing to happen after it was all over. I mean, if it happened in the middle of it, it wouldn't have been so bad, but this deal was all over, and there was no reason uh, for all of this. I was so overcome, I said to him, do you mind if I sit down? And he said, no, go ahead. And I sat down. And all of a sudden, the old alcoholic mind started to work again, and, and the shock was over, and I started to fight back. And he, he said to me, I don't know what you would use for your defense. And I said to him, I will plead chronic alcoholism. Now, I don't know where that came from because I hadn't given it too much thought. I certainly didn't think I was alcoholic. But all of a sudden, I saw that as a way out. And one of my drinking buddies was the doctor. And I said, I'm sure that I can get the doctor to testify to that. Uh, the only problem might be that he'd be called one too. <laughs> but uh, he said that might work. And then he said, supposing that we, we don't court-martial you, supposing that we... 
do something else. What what do you think we could do that would would help you? And I said, well, why don't you put me on the wagon for a couple of weeks? I can still hear him screaming. The, long, the upshot was that I was put on the wagon indefinitely. I wasn't allowed to drink in my own mess, and I wasn't allowed to go into any other place. I wasn't allowed to go to any bar or any mess other than my own. And I was only allowed to go there because I had to go there to eat. And I want you to know that I never missed a round. Uh, it didn't stop me. In those days, we had a, in the bar, we didn't have any mix. We had some kind of a raspberry concoction that was a homemade deal, and, and it was great for concealing cognac, as, and nobody knew the difference, and I kept right on. When the draft came for me to go back to Canada, all my luggage went and all my buddies went, but somehow I missed the draft, and... And when I got back, they said, well, there's no boats going for a while. You might as well go and leave. And and I come back late from that leave again and missed the next draft. And I was supposed to go home in November. I never got there till February. And there was a sign out on the front of our house that said, Welcome home, son. It had been there since November. And it was pretty badly faded. But the welcome wasn't faded. And... And I will never forget the the way I was greeted and the love and the warmth and the feeling it was to come home again and and to make a new start. But it presented problems to me in that I now was faced with the fact that I was surrounded by relatives and people like my grandparents and my mother who were getting up in years and I didn't know how to how to deal with them and I I knew that I, I couldn't maintain the kind of behavior that they would like to see, and so I immediately left. I, I left home. I probably stayed around home about six months and then moved. And I moved up to the northern part of Saskatchewan, to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And I went back home in 1947 and married a girl who lived next door to me that I went to school with at I had been in love with for many years, and and it was beyond my wildest dreams that she would consider me for marriage, and she did, and, and we had a beautiful wedding, and we went up, she came back up to Prince Albert with me to start our married life, and by some magic and the grace of God, that'll be 34 years come this September, and and we've stayed together. But we didn't have a great deal of trouble initially because drinking parties were the thing in those days, and, and I guess they are today too, but, but all our friends drank, and uh, all of us got a little drunk once in a while, and, and just that I got a little drunk more often than the others. But uh, we didn't have a great deal of trouble for a few years. But then I started to have trouble with my business and my occupation, and, and gradually I went lost my own business, and I, I went on the road traveling, and I, I started meeting some of my lower companions. Some of them are here. Uh, as a matter of fact, Bobby's here from Victoria, and I think Bobby and I shared my last drunk. And uh, he was a social drinker in those days, and I'm glad to see him here. 
matter of fact, Bobby, uh, after that last drunk, when I come back to see Bobby to tell him that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, he was looking for me to tell him he didn't want to drink with me anymore. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know whether it was because he didn't like the way I drank or whether he was sick of buying. During those days, I, I kept getting lower and lower, and I wound up drinking in the Prince Albert beer parlor where I met a young man by the name of Cecil. And Cecil was a, a chap who had some dreams to become a railroader, and he used to sit around the beer parlor with his railroad overalls and hat on, and, and he didn't look like he looks today. And he was what you would call a sloppy drunk. And Cecil and I got to be buddies, and I belonged to the Kinsman Club, and, and Cecil wanted to join the Kinsman Club, and I want you to know that I had more trouble getting C. Scorigal into the Kinsman Club than he had getting me into Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> we were blessed with two children, a, a girl and a boy, and uh, I used to be in the grocery business, and people would say, do you have any family? And I'd say, yes, I have a sixth of a dozen assorted. And we had a, a somewhat reasonably happy home for a number of years, but things just got to the point where it was desperation. And, and I, the last drunk I was on, it, I don't know how long it took. I do know that it, was, it came to an end in March of 1956. And, and the last day, the last 24 hours... I hope that if I ever pick up another drink of alcohol, that I die right away. Because I hope that as long as I live, I never have to get sober again. I have no fear of getting drunk, but I don't want to ever have to get sober. I don't want to ever have to go through that again. And I will never be able to describe or explain the terrible, terrible ordeal of getting sober. And people today talk about the hospitals and the treatment centers, and all I can say to you, if that makes it any easier, well then, good luck to you, because I don't envy anybody that has to come off alcohol cold turkey. And in those days, that was the treatment, and we were not allowed to put anybody in a hospital, and this we were able to sit with them 24 hours, and you immediately uh, were tagged. <laughs> and unfortunately, I had a doctor who uh, we drank together a little too, and, and he wouldn't allow them to put me in a hospital, and so I dried out at home. And thank God I was at home. The last day of my drinking, I wound up in a hotel, and and that last afternoon, I was a crying, babbling idiot. I was not a person who anybody would be proud to meet or to know. I was not a person that had any human dignity left. And I phoned for help, and I phoned the only guy I knew at the time that was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was my old drinking buddy, Cease. And I phoned Cease, and... And as a matter of fact, Cease was tied up. He, he couldn't take the call. So I asked to speak to his boss, who was a close personal friend of mine. And 
I said to Alec, Alec, you told me one time you're a friend of mine. If I ever needed a friend, I need one now. And he said, where are you? And I told him. And he came right over, and he picked up the phone, and phone Cecil and said, whatever you're doing, stop it and get over here right away. And so Cecil came, and he phoned my wife and said, I have a, a guy here that's in pretty bad shape. What should I do with him? And she said, you might as well bring him home. And so my start in Alcoholics Anonymous started that day. The next morning I woke up and Cecil was sitting beside my bed. And I don't know what he greeted me with, but I do know that he said to me, Are you serious about joining Alcoholics Anonymous? And I thought, Oh my God, what have I done this time? I had forgotten for a while about the day before. I couldn't remember parts of it, and, and I couldn't remember that, that, that I'd phoned him. And, and then all of a sudden, the night came back, and the doctor came back, and the guy holding the bottle that was dripping in my arm came back. And, and I don't know how many hours had, had gone by, but Cecil was there. And what are you going to say? Just tell me, what are you going to say if you're lying in your own bed? In that condition, and somebody says, are you serious about joining Alcoholics Anonymous? And you know the only reason he would be there is because he's an Alcoholics Anonymous. Certainly you say, I'm, oh, by all means. And I thought, how the hell can I get out of this mess? And I was talking to Cease when the sheriff arrived. And this guy apparently had been looking for me for some time, and and he'd been calling on my wife, and she would explain to him that I wasn't home, and, and he would go away, and then he would come back. And, and this time he came to the door, and she said, well, he's home, but he's terribly ill. And he said, um, well, I have to see him anyway. And he came in with some of those legal documents. I don't know whether they're writs or summonses or what the hell they were, but... I had enough presence of mind just to tell him to put them in the top drawer with the rest of them. And in the top drawer in my bureau that I had were all my bad checks. They weren't bad, they were just slow. And, <laughs> and, and all my unpaid bills and, and all those papers that you just would like to be rid of. A friend of mine said he got more mail than the President of the United States, and I, I think I was at least second to him. And and he looked at me, and he called Cease out, and he said, My goodness, I hope you can do something for that young fellow, because he's in terrible shape. And she said, Well, we'll try. And I happened to run into him several years later, and I recognized him, and I, I went up to him and, and introduced myself and asked him if he'd remembered that morning, and he said he surely did, and he couldn't believe that it was me. Cecil brought out the 20 questions and asked me to answer them. And I like to tell him that it was a lead pipe cinch because one of the questions was, did you seek lower companions when you were drinking? And how the hell could I argue with that when I drank with him? But we went through that, that deal and, and he supplied me with a lot of pamphlets and a lot of books and and Babe came up, and he and Babe and Norm and I drank gallons of coffee, and and another guy come up, and, and I had to sit and explain my financial situation, and 
And it was determined that the best thing that could happen would be that my sister would come and take the children away, that we would sell our home and, and put that money into some kind of a, a fund to pay off some very pressing things, and, and that we would move to another city and start our life over again. And we did that. We moved to the city where Bobby lived, and, and we moved into a basement apartment. And I think Bob was one of the few people that saw that place. It was a room in a basement of an old house, and, and it was rather drafty and rather leaky, and, and it certainly was not a high-class place. The rent that I paid for the whole thing, including light heat and everything, was $34 a month. And I remember I had to make a down payment on it. I did that with a $5 bill. I had no money, and I had no way of making any money, and, and I worked, and all the money I made went to pay off my debts. And my wife got a job, and she went to work, and, and it seemed such a terribly hopeless situation. And, and Bob and his wife had just moved into a new home, and we spent hours with them, and we, we went over to their house every opportunity, and... And we played bridge, and we watched television, and and Bob and his wife and their family were just so dear to us in those days, and, and we have such fond memories of those early days. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous who opened their homes to us, and and we had a club in Saskatoon called the Alano Club that was run by the wives of members, and we would meet up there for lunch, and we would meet up there after work and we would play crib and we would go to socials up there and our whole lives just evolved around Alcoholics Anonymous. There was no way that I could get the family back because I just couldn't couldn't put anything together where I could get a home of any kind that would accommodate them. And every time I did try to get something together, it would fall apart for some reason or another. And then one day I'd gone to my meeting on a Saturday afternoon and and came back and and there was a phone call and guy said I understand you're looking for a house and I said uh, I am but how much is the rent and he said well why don't you come and look at the house and I said there's no use looking at the house and this I know what the rent is because I can't afford much rent and he said well why don't you come and look at the house and we'll discuss it and I got very frustrated with this guy because he didn't seem to understand that my situation was the way it was and and then he said to me, well, what else have you got to do this afternoon? And I, you know, I didn't have anything else to do. And so I said, okay. And my wife and I got in the car and went over. We had a car, a company car, or the finance companies. And we, we drove over to, to have a look at this house. And, and I don't know what that house looks like today, but that day it looked like a mansion. And... We walked around, and I just knew that there was no way that, that I could ever live in that house. Uh, the fact that, that both my wife and I had come from the homes we'd come from made it so degrading because neither one of us had been deprived of anything in our lives, and neither one of us would have allowed any of our family to see the condition that we were living in at that time. And I walked around and looked, and I, I knew that it was out of, out of our reach. And I said to him, okay, how much uh, is the deal? What's the deal on this place? And he said, I tell you what, I have a, a daughter who is working in Saskatoon, and I have a son who is still in high school. And we had this house rented to people who 
were looking after them and providing them with their meals and making sure they're looked after. And they moved out very suddenly and left us with this situation. And we live out in the country and we can't move into town. You supply the groceries and we'll supply the house. And I said to him, I said to myself, that is too good a deal. There's something wrong with this. This is a gimmick of some kind. This guy is crooked, sure as hell. And so I sat there and I said, uh, would you be prepared to put that in writing? And he very seriously said, yes, we can draw that up legally if you would like me to. He said, uh, I happen to run a credit union and I have access to legal help and I will have a lease drawn up with everything spelled out in the lease. And I said, well, if that's the condition and you're willing to do that, I will accept the deal. That was Saturday afternoon. We moved in Monday. And I didn't feel it necessary to give my landlord where I was living much notice. And so we moved in and uh, he said to me, how long have you been sober? And I told him how many months it had been. And he said, well, I have been sober two years and I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in Dinsmore, Saskatchewan. And he happened to have been up in the Alano Club that Saturday afternoon when somebody told him of my predicament and, and it just was a miracle in my life and there's no other way I can describe it because that enabled us to get our family back together again and and we very shortly thereafter had our son and our daughter back with us and later on about uh, two or three months my mother-in-law came to visit us and, and she was not unhappy with our situation, but she didn't see why we shouldn't have a home of our own. And she said to me, how'd be I buy you a house? And I said, well, I don't mind who I pay rent to as long as we draw it up so that I can pay you. I would be glad to move into our own home. And so with her help, we were able to buy our own home. And two years after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was back in our own home. And I want to tell you that I've never had to look for a job, and I've never done without a thing, and I've never had anything but comfort since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. So if there's somebody sitting out there tonight that has got problems, and you think that they're hopeless, and you think that it's all right for us to say that our problems were solved, but yours are different, don't think that you can't be helped, because whatever you're supposed to have, you will have. And good things will happen to you along with difficult times, but it will come to pass that you will have what you're supposed to have, and everything that you will ever need in your life will be given to you, because that's the way it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the way it was with me. And I came to Alcoholics at a time when, Alcoholics Anonymous at a time when we shared a great deal with each other, and we shared whatever we had, and our homes were open. And I, I know that our children were brought up in such a way that, that they never called anybody Mr. We had people in Alcoholics Anonymous that were, were just people who I loved and respected more than I, anybody that 
you couldn't love them any more if they'd been your father. And Dave Murray was, Dave was in his 60s when he got sober, and Dave died when he was 84 and never looked back. And, and we called him Old Dave. And my kids called him Old Dave. I mean, you know, they'd say, well, if it was somebody outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones. But if it was anybody in AA, they'd say, well, here comes Old Ed or Old Dave. And, and they would gather around. And if it was somebody outside of AA, the kids wouldn't take two seconds. They'd, they'd say hi and disappear. But if it was somebody from AA, they'd sit around and talk. They'd listen. And, and so this is the way it was. And we had, our group had kids' parties, and we had socials together. And mind you, we had a group. When everybody was there, there was ten of us. And uh, it wasn't a big, big group. We met in a guy's house. And... Uh, but it was close, and it was good fun, and it was a beautiful way to start. My wife did not get into Al-Anon because there was no Al-Anon then. There was, there was a, a gathering of sorts, but it was not Al-Anon. And, and because she had to go back to work and she was busy, she didn't find the time, and she enjoyed the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she read all the books and went to all the open meetings, and so she felt that she had all she needed, and I... I believe that she did have at the time. I got involved in service early in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I don't know whether some of the people from Weyburn remember this or not, but we had hot political issues to discuss in those days. We had the North and the South and, and the Mason-Dixie line. And I remember that I was at a meeting one Saturday afternoon, and I was asked to they went around the room and said, who can go to a meeting in Davidson, Saskatchewan tomorrow? And nobody moved. And they said, well, Mac, you've got a car. You can go. And I said, yeah, I guess I could. And they said, okay, you're our group representative. And we'll, we'll pay your gas. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And they said, well, we'll tell you. So after the meeting was over, I went upstairs and old Ed got out the third legacy manual and started to coach me and tell me that it was time that Saskatchewan had adopted the third legacy, uh, con the, the general service conference system as laid down in the third legacy manual. Now, I, between then and noon the next day, I had a, a fast course in general service work and the third legacy manual, and I became an expert on it. And... I went to the meeting the next day, and I, I went to the chairman and said, I have something that I have to present. And he said, what is that? And I said, I told him, and he said, there's no need for that. And I said, well, I am instructed to do this, and I have to do it, so I'll have to bring it up under new business or whatever opportunity of service. And we were very knowledgeable ourselves. We did learn. We sure learned the hard way. And... But that was a great experience for me, and I've been involved in service most of my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the things that happened to me was that I'd had an experience before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in the, in the early summer, in May of 1946, just shortly after I had got home from overseas. My grandfather had taken seriously ill, and all of our family was called home. 
And one of the members of our family happened to be a doctor who happened to be the guy that brought the first big book to Winnipeg. He, he was the guy that was instrumental in starting Alcoholics Anonymous in Winnipeg. And Brian was at our house, and I can remember sitting on the front steps of my grandmother's home with, with Brian on a beautiful evening like this when he explained to me that there was a wonderful new thing had started in, and that it was called Alcoholics Anonymous and that it was based on one drunk helping another. And I thought it was a wonderful story and I, I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't criticize him for being so, so enthusiastic about it because after all he was a very learned man, he was a doctor and that was his business and, and he was helping these drunks and I thought it was a great story. I didn't pay much attention to it. In 1962, I, I was on my way back from, from the General Service Conference in New York, and I went to Cleveland, where they then lived, and, and Brian, by this time, was, was a very, had a large practice in Cleveland, and he was teaching at Cleveland University, and, and I went and spent a couple of days with him, and, and I talked to him about that time, and I said to him, do you recall the evening where we sat on our front steps and you talked about Alcoholics Anonymous? And he said, I certainly do. And I said, did you have anything in mind for me at the time? And he said, I certainly did. And you see, it had gone right over my head. I hadn't even, it hadn't registered with me, but he had tried in his own way to let me know about this fellowship. So I had known about Alcoholics Anonymous since 1946. While I was in Cleveland, I talked to him about some of the problems we had. Now, this man was a great believer in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he believed in, in the book, and he applied the principles that we talk about in his life, and he applied them in his practice. And he, he told me about some of the things he had done, and, and uh, uh, there was no mystery about this to him. He... His father had been a minister, and he was, although he was a a psychiatrist, who a lot of people believe psychiatrists don't believe in God as we understand them, but he did, and it worked in his life. And so he told me at the time that when I talked to him about some of the problems we're having, that in order to go ahead, sometimes we have to go back. And he said, I would suggest to you that probably the answer to some of your problems are to go back to the big book and go back to the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was the start of a journey of the program of recovery for me that was completely different. Because up until that time, we'd spent most of our time in meetings using a book called The Little Red Book. And that came about through no fault of anybody's. It was just a, a thing that evolved. You see, the way Alcoholics Anonymous came about was by one person coming and, and, and sharing at another meeting. And, you know, if somebody came from Winnipeg that was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, we treated them like a, a celebrity. And if they said you get sober by eating chocolates at noon hour, that's what we would have done. And... When they said you, you use the little red book for your meetings, that's what we did. And so we went back and we started using the big book and we started doing the steps. And through a long period of time, we got around to where we did the steps and we started to apply the steps to our lives and we started going through the steps and doing them to the best of our ability. And we started to see recovery take place. 
And about that time, I started working with people who were so-called slippers in this program. And I want to tell you how glad I was to hear people talk about their slips and how they had come back. Because I believe that it's possible for us to get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and get so pious in our sobriety that we even forget sometimes that alcoholics drink booze. You know, did you ever sit in a meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous and somebody said, did so-and-so got drunk and said, my God, what happened to him? I wonder what happened to him. Well, hell, he got drunk. That's what happened to him. He got drunk because he's alcoholic, because he's got an illness called alcoholism. And we should never forget that. You know, there's people that are, are sober so many years. You know, they're sober so long. They're fire hazards. They get so damn dry. And, and, and they forget. And if there's anything we have to guard against is forgetting where we came from. There's more people die from a bad memory than anything else in this world. We forget where the hell we came from. And we forget that it's no credit to us that we stay stand here like I do tonight, sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And some of the guys that came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I did happened to go back drinking. And I used to go to meetings with them, and I used to feel the way they were treated. And I used to think, God, I hope I never get to that point where I look down my nose at somebody because they smell a little bit. And you know what's happening today? People are coming to alcoholics out of treatment centers, and they're all clean, and they're all dressed up, and they're all shiny, and we look at them and say, what the hell's wrong with them? You know, we don't want to help them because they're sober. <laughs> you know, they don't smell right. And somebody else has got them first. You know, did you ever stop to think about the fact that nobody could have hurt me as much as I hurt myself. I don't care what kind of treatment center I could have gone to or what kind of stuff I was fed. Nobody could have hurt me as much as I hurt myself. There is nobody in this world that was more unkind to Mac than Mac was. There's nobody could have hurt me as much as I did. And so anybody that goes anywhere, they'll get here eventually. they got no place else to go. There is no other place. Any treatment center, any hospital, any deal of any kind that doesn't eventually send people to Alcoholics Anonymous is doomed to failure. It just won't work. So they're going to come here one way or the other. And so let's never forget where we came from. And so I got involved with a bunch of guys and, and gals who are slippers. And we have a little group back in Winnipeg called the Golden Slippers. <laughs> and I want you to know that some of our people don't smell all that great on Sunday morning. But by God, we're starting to spend a lot of money on birthday cakes. And you know, it's getting to be quite a consideration. Cakes cost about $2.50. And, and, and we got to start giving them away. And... There's one guy that was one of the first guys. As a matter of fact, he was the guy I called on that Saturday night when we started our group. And, and his name is Cliff. And old Cliff was the guy that phoned me. I'd been calling on Cliff since 1958, and this would be about 1973. And Cliff was an exciting 12-step call to make because Cliff quite often would determine to kill himself. And he always wanted to use an automatic Browning shotgun. Now, if you've ever tried to shoot yourself with a shotgun, it's not very easy to do that. And 
And Cliff's suicide, I was always afraid I was going to be the first one to go. The first thing I had to do with Cliff was get his shotgun away from him. He carried this shotgun because his wife had kicked him out and she had a boyfriend and he used to go around periodically and shoot the tires off the boyfriend's car. And I can recall when we first started talking about the fourth step, Cliff said he didn't have any resentment, you know. <laughs> a classic case. Anyway, Cliff phoned me and he said, I know that, that I hate to bother you on a Saturday night because I know you're not home very often on Saturday nights, but he said... I've called everybody else I know, and nobody will come, and I need help desperately. Well, I'd just been talking to a guy that was in about the same shape the day before, and old Ross was wanting some help, and so I phoned Ross and said, let's go and call on Cliff. And Ross and I went and called on Cliff, and unbeknownst to me, Ross and Cliff shared some booze that night when I was I was pontificating, and, and God, they were listening and drinking and... And I was doing great, and, and I didn't know they were drinking, and I was so interested in my own message, I, 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 they, they conned me right out of my bootstraps. And they decided the three of us should have breakfast together the next morning, and it was at my expense, of course. And so I went right along with a deal. Now, I'm sober, and they're drunk, but I went right along with a deal. And... The next morning, they said, well, if we had somebody that paid special attention to us, we wouldn't have to drink, you know. But we go to meetings and nobody pays any attention to us. So I said, well, why don't we start a meeting, you know, of your own? You know, you don't have to go to any We can start one of your own. And, and they said, yeah, but if we do that, everybody will come. <laughs> and, and I said, well, why don't you start one at a time when nobody will come? And they said, okay, 7 o'clock Sunday morning. Well, I got them down a bit. I eventually got them down to 8.30. And after a while, after the two of them got sober, and we're sober about three years, we got it down to 9 o'clock. But that's where I've been every Sunday morning. I've been home since. Well, we started to get some people sober, but Cliff and Ross kept right on drinking. And... Ross was our secretary, treasurer, and his wife phoned me up and said, what in the world is wrong with you putting Ross in charge of the money? And I remember said, well, Yvonne, if, if Ross is still drinking, I don't know of anybody that needs more money more than he does. And, and if he takes our money, eventually he'll pay it back. Don't worry about it. Well... Ross was the best secretary treasurer that we ever had in the group until he got sober. And he got sober, we had to replace him because he got very careless with the books after he got sober. But he never did take any money, but he quit. He used to, when he was drinking, he kept track of everybody that came to that group. He could tell you any, exactly any meeting you missed and what day it was. Well, Cliff kept on drinking, and one day I was going to a a meeting on Sunday morning and I thought if we don't do something for poor Cliff he's going to die because this, by this time Cliff's liver is sticking out about two feet and we had run out of hospitals for him and and I was going down to speak at a conference in the States called Blue Ridge and I said to Cliff how would you like to come down to North Carolina with me? Well, Cliff had never been on an airline before and and he came to North Carolina and the boys down there put him in a room to share a room with a guy whose story is in the big book. And, and Cliff spent the weekend there, and, 
and uh, they do great things down there. Like they wake you up in the morning by playing uh, that old song, Nothing Could Be Finer Than to Be in Carolina. And the first morning, Cliff came running to me and said, What in the hell is going on? What are they playing that for? He didn't know anything about Carolina. Or we were in a hall called Robert e. Lee, Robert D. Lee, and he didn't know who that was. And, and they had a big painting of the gentleman, and he didn't even know what that was. And that's a bad thing to go around North Carolina talking like that. But anyway, they didn't kill him. They sobered him up. And Cliff's never had a drink since. Cliff come back from there and stayed sober. And I don't know why, but he did. And I guess what I'm saying is that you love people sober. I guess what happens to people is you just love them sober. And I guess that's what happened to me because I got all the love and the care that a person could get. And I guess that's what this program is all about, is love. And this theme you have, let it begin with me. That's what you have to let begin with you, is love. And that's what this whole thing is about. It's the love of one alcoholic for another alcoholic. It's the love of one human being for another human being. Not as a professional man, not as a doctor, not as a lawyer, not as anything. Just one human being reaching out to another human being and giving of yourself of giving whatever you have. I will never forget last fall I was in another place in North Carolina and I met a guy that that it, there's a guy like that everywhere you go. He's a a well-meaning guy that does everything wrong and and this guy came up to me the first night I was there and said, "Well, I guess it must be nice to get away from the cold weather." And I said, well, uh, it's not cold where I come from at this time of the year. And he said, oh, yes, it is. And I said, well, you know, it was 75 when I left there, and it was about 75 where we were. And I said, it was just the same there today as it is here. And he said, I don't believe that. And so I took a note of his name on his name tag and thought I'll try to stay away from that gentleman. But the next day after he mentioned a few more things and and I overlooked it. And the next day he came up to me and said, that was pretty dumb of me last night. He said, uh, I said, what do you mean, Bill? And he said, well, that was awfully dumb of me the way I talked. He said, I just seemed to do everything wrong. And I kind of liked him right then. And so I watched him. And uh, first thing he did is there was a fellow that was smoking a big expensive cigar and he had to go up on the podium and so he handed his cigar to Bill and said Bill hold this for me and so Bill was sitting the door was open and Bill didn't hold it he went out and placed it gently on a bumper of a car and and as the guy was talking and Bill was watching him I happened to look and I, just as the car was backing, <laughs> backing up with the guy's cigar on it and it drove away and of course Bill says, everything I do, I try to do everything right, and it always turns out wrong. And and then he started picking up all the coffee cups while the people were still drinking coffee. And they all yelled, they all yelled at him. And he said, even when I'm right, I'm wrong. Well, Sunday I stayed over, and I was staying over for a day because it was November 11th holiday. And 
Uh, that afternoon, Bill came to me and said, you know, I, I guess it's going to be pretty lonesome here when everybody goes, and there was the hotel emptied, and there was nobody else coming in. And I said, uh, well, I suppose, but I don't mind. And he said, uh, I was talking to my wife, and I said to her, you know, it's going to be awfully lonesome for Mac if he stays here and everybody else goes home. He said, why don't we stay over with him? And so they stayed overnight, and drove me around the next day and and just were tremendous people to me. Now this Bill, he was a guy that come out of a mental institution and and while he was in a mental institution they taught him how to trim trees and this area made me think of him because he became an arborist. And that's what he does for a living now. He trims trees and he's very successful. But one of the things he did is he took me to a, a bookstore to find a book I was looking for and I couldn't find it. And he must have written down the title because about two weeks after I got home along in the mail came the book I was looking for. And Bill was trying to love me. And that's all he was trying to do to everybody was love him. And sometimes it's hard to recognize. And sometimes we, we get upset with people because we don't see and we don't hear and we don't understand what they're trying to do. So... If there's anything I'd like to leave with you is, is learn how to love, but learn how to be loved. Because it's just important to let people love us as it is to learn how to love them. And that's important in Alcoholics Anonymous. Life is not easy. It, it is not a deal where you get a free ride. Come to, you come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, many people run into financial difficulties, and I've had my share. And many people run into job difficulties. I've been fortunate in that regard, but other people haven't. Many people see their dreams shattered, and, and we are subject to all the things that mankind is subject to. And, and we've had their, our share of that in our family. And I want to tell you that the one thing that I've found is that every time that you have a problem, you get the strength to face it. Every hill you get to climb, you get the strength to climb it. And I, I know that there are days when that old song that was written about this time you gave me a mountain seems to be true. And, and you say to your God, as you understand him, this time you've given me a mountain. But if you wait and don't rush, you will get the strength to climb that mountain. And things will be all right. I, as I said, came from a good Christian home and and I wound up not knowing anything about God or anything of a spiritual nature. It just is not compatible to drink alcohol and live a life of spirituality, regardless of who you are. That's why we have ministers and priests and deacons and everything else in this fellowship who, who weren't able to, to turn that power on. You see, Bill said that the power, the great reality is that that power lies deep within each of us. And God was never lost in my life, but something had to turn that power on. And there's a fellow who has done some research in that, and medically speaking, we're not far. We're not far from being able to prove medically how this program works. Do you know that just in the last couple of years they found that our own bodies are able to produce 
the greatest painkiller known to mankind. We are we have come a long way scientifically to know that our own bodies have the greatest healing capacity of there is. And so probably we're not far away from knowing how this thing really works within us. But I do know that whatever it is, is there and it has to be turned on. And that's what happens when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not a question of discovery. It's a question of turning it on. It's a question maybe of us coming to realize what's happening, but it was happening all the time. God never did desert me. I never denied the existence of God until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I only did that because I wanted to belong. You know, I, I, I was like, I don't suppose too many people were like me, but I didn't think I was bad enough. Anybody here feel that way? I didn't, I didn't think I was bad enough to belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. A fellow told me one time something I'll never forget, and I like to mention this at every meeting I go to. If you're sitting out there tonight and you're wondering whether you're alcoholic or not, if you're wondering whether you're bad enough to belong to Alcoholics Anonymous or not, you are. Because the guy and gal that's not isn't wondering about it. You see, the person that's not alcoholic doesn't wonder about it. My wife is a social drinker. When it comes to drinking, she's a proverbial pain in the ass. And there's no other way to describe a legitimate social drinker. Social drinkers have a problem that someday mankind will get around to doing something about. I suspect the only thing we can do with them is ban them. And if you don't believe me, take a close look at the next time you, the next time you get a chance at somebody that's a social drinker and watch what they do with alcohol. It's just terrible. And my wife is one of those people. In a real heavy night, she'll maybe go through three ounces. About two and a half of that evaporates. The rest she kills with mix and ice. She has never, in the 34 years we've been married, said to me, do you think I'm alcoholic? It has never crossed her mind. So if you are wondering whether you're alcoholic or not, you are. I might also tell you there has never been a known case of somebody getting here that shouldn't be here. That our problem has never been gate crashers. It has always been people going the other way. When I came here, I had, I had to make come to a new understanding about a God of my own choice. And, and I want to tell you that just a bit about that, because it is sometimes difficult for us, and, and some of you here might be having difficulty in that area. You do not have to ever get up and testify as to the address and the nature of your God. You never have to get up and defend him in any way or her. You, you never have to describe her or him to anybody. All you have to do is reach a point in your life where you're willing to believe. If you are willing to believe, you can start and it will grow from there. All you have to do is to have the capability to act as though you believe. And if you can't act, you're in the wrong place. If you can't act, you certainly are not alcoholic.
Because in order to survive as an alcoholic, you had to act all your life. Did you ever come to work on a Monday morning, having just got out of the drunk tank, and everybody says, did you have a nice weekend? You say, oh yeah, I had a lovely weekend. You know, you act. The boss says, you got any problems? You say, oh no, hell no, what makes you think I got any problems? You know, just because the sheriff's chasing me around town. You know, that's not really a problem. You act all your life. You get up in the morning, your wife says, do you feel okay? Well, certainly I feel okay. What the hell's wrong with you? Don't I look okay? And you act all your life. You act. From the time I was in high school, I acted. And I had an imagination. All I had to do was sit and, and think. I could be anything I wanted to be. In those days, you know, when the movies had such a powerful effect on us, I could be any actor I wanted to be, you know. And I used to walk down the street with my trench collar up, and, you know, I was Humphrey Bogart. Pull my hat down, stick a cigarette out of my mouth. You could be whatever you wanted to be. You had to be to survive. You know, did you ever go into a bank and cash a check when you were drinking? No trouble. Go in there sober and they won't cash the damn thing, you know. That's because you forget how to act. <laughs> and we come here and all we're asked to do is to act as though we believe. And if we can pretend that we believe and act as though we do, it'll work. All we have to do is pretend we believe and do the simple things we're asked to do. And it will work. And the day will come when you believe. And you will not be able to go back and say, I didn't believe on this day, but I did on this day. You don't know. It just takes place. We have a spiritual experience. We start to experience something in our lives that we can't account for. I went to my sponsor shortly after I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and said there's an awful lot of God stuff in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's Bible thumpers in here. And he said to me, how long have you been sober? And I told him, and I don't know how long it had been. It hadn't been very long. And, and he said, how many years has it been since you went that long without a drink? And I thought, and I could not honestly tell him how many years it had been since I had gone that long without at least one drink of alcohol. And then he said to me, do you think you did it all by yourself? And I knew I hadn't. I knew that I didn't have that power within myself. I knew that I couldn't stay sober. By God, I had tried to stay sober. I had quit drinking a thousand times, and I couldn't do it. And I knew that something had happened in my life. I was experiencing something in my life I couldn't deny. I could not deny the fact that I was sober. And I, so I was experiencing sobriety that I couldn't account for in any other way. So I was having an experience that was a spiritual experience. That's all that happens to us. It's not a great big deal. People say they never heard bells ringing or saw lights flashing. Well, read the book. Bill didn't either. There's nothing in the books that says Bill heard bells ringing or lights flashing. Read it. He just felt different. And he says, I felt. And he tells you how he felt. That's how we feel. We feel different. No big deal going to happen, you know. You just feel different. And that's how, how it starts. And our book says, very simply, that either God is or he isn't. Well, if he isn't, you can't talk about it. 
How can you talk about an ism? Did you ever drink with people and sit around and talk about isms? You ever go into a bar and say, let's have a little big discussion about isms today? They throw you out. Then it says he's either everything or he's nothing. Well, how can you talk about nothing? I was an intellectual alcoholic. I didn't talk about nothing. We didn't even discuss little mutual or, you know, little municipal affairs. We talked about international things. You know, we would have solved that. They, they would have no need for that summit meeting if they'd if I'd have known about that. We could have solved that any Saturday afternoon in the beer parlor. We didn't talk about nothing. If he's nothing, he's nothing, and it requires no further explanation. You just don't have to explain nothing. If he's everything, he's everything, and everything is everything. If you want to see what God looks like, look around you. It's all over the place. If you want to see God, look in the eyes of a sober alcoholic, look in the eyes of a mother, look in the eyes of a wife or a child. We're in the people business in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're not in the drunk business. We're in the people business. We're in the grandmother and the mother business and the kid business and the wife business. And go to their homes and see the joy and happiness that comes about because of Alcoholics Anonymous in their lives. I went into a home one day on a 12-step call, and as I rang the doorbell, I'll never forget this, because this lovely-looking lady came to the door, and she didn't smile or say hello or anything. She just kept right on going. And, and I stood there, and out the door came another beautiful little girl. She was about 16, and she smiled and said hello and kept right on going and left the door open. So... I walked in, and there stretched on the floor in that beautiful living room was the master of the house. And he was in a pair of khaki pants, and he looked very uncomfortable and very sloppy and, and very drunk. Upstairs were the rest of the family, the little kids. They were hiding upstairs. Well, Eddie came to our fellowship, and Eddie learned about a power greater than himself. He had difficulty, as many of us do, and he used to sit. And I got him to get up early and, and pray and meditate. He used to say, I, I sat up and I looked out the window and watched the grass grow. But, you see, we went back to that house the next Christmas, my wife and I, and we dropped in there on Christmas Eve, and there in that same home was the family. They were all sitting in the living room that night, and in the corner was a beautiful Christmas tree, and it was all decorated. And under the tree were a whole pile of gifts. And sitting around the, the room were, were all the family. The kids weren't hiding upstairs. And there in the corner, in his chair, was the master of the house. And he was the center of attraction that night. He was the father, and he was the husband. And little Ike crawled up on my knee, and I said, Ike, have you written a letter to Santa Claus? And he said, no, but I've told my dad. You come with me on a call like that and tell me there's no God, and I'll tell you where you should go, because you shouldn't be walking around loose. You can't deny this thing. Frank was a lawyer in Prince Albert, and Frank got sober after many, many tries. Frank was a golfer, uh, as some people here are, and... Frank used to say, some people take a long approach and some people take a short approach. And he said, I just happen to take the long approach. But one day Frank got sober. And when we asked Frank, how long have you been sober? Frank he used to say, what difference does it make? I'm sober. Frank died of cancer and, and he never looked back. 
One day Frank was walking down the street, and by this time he was the city solicitor. And a doctor stopped him on the street and said, Frank, would you answer a question for me? Frank said, I will if I can. What's your question? He said, Frank, tell me how come you're so happy? And Frank said, Doctor, as I stand here and look around, every piece of property I see belongs to you. And I don't have the proverbial pot. What makes you think I'm so happy? And the doctor said, Frank, I can see it in your eyes. You see, you can't deny this thing. It shows. It shows here tonight. It shows here. It showed here when, when I was met at the airport. It shows everywhere I go. And when John said, how will I know you? I don't worry about it. I've never missed yet. I get off aircraft in the strangest cities and I've never missed yet. I don't know. We just know each other. We look and we can see the look on the face. And we walk up and say, hi, I'm Mac. And we never miss. I've never shaken hands with a stranger. And it just works. Our family grew up to be very happy, and, and we were a very close family, mainly because we lived away from home. I moved away from home because of my relatives, and, and I moved back there uh, many years later, about 20 years, and it wasn't until after I was back in my old hometown a, a few years I realized nobody had ever suggested that I move back. Uh, I moved, moved away, and they didn't object, and they didn't ask me back, and yet they loved me dearly. And when we came back home, we found that, that we had we'd found a, a way of a life that would just involve our own family. And my sister was a great one for getting all the relatives together, and our kids wouldn't go. And, and our family was Alcoholics Anonymous, and still is. And we had a great deal of trouble in our home. We had our son die from cancer. And that was a hill that we had to climb. That was a mountain in our lives. And that was something that our whole family turned a corner and we came apart for a while. And, and two years after we buried our son, I sat in the living room one night and, and had my wife tell me that she had cancer. And... She went through an operation, and she's fine today. And a year ago, February, I sat in the same living room and told them that I had cancer. And, and we went through that, and, and I'm okay today, and I want you to know I'm going to run on that Terry Fox run on the 13th of September, and some of you are going to get dinged for some money for that. And uh, So... Life isn't always a bowl of cherries, and I could spend many hours telling you about what we went through and what happened to our family. But we are blessed today because on the 15th of June this year, I helped celebrate my son-in-law's first anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have a, a beautiful relationship with that boy, and, and we are, are closer than than father and son could be, and and my daughter and I have always been so close, and it's just a beautiful thing, and they have a little boy who's three years of age, and he's a great little guy, and and so we have so much to be thankful for, and we're blessed in so many ways, and there's 
so much love in our family and so much love in our our neighborhood and in our group. I am a blessed individual. I've walked many places in this world and go many, many, many places, and I never know why. And it just, some days I, I just am overwhelmed. There are very few days that I don't drive down the street and almost have to pinch myself to think, is this really happening to me? Because I'm Mac the drunk. And I sit there in my job and I, I look at my president and wonder if he's got all his marbles because of the way he trusts me. And I say to him at times, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drunk, you know, you're asking me to do things that, you know, I'm lucky to have a job, and, and here you are trusting me to do things like this. And so I'm truly a blessed individual. You know, I talked about love, and I want to close with a story about love, because many of us, when we were young, at least in my day,